So today I'd like to welcome Dr. Freda Abtel, who's a Canadian audiovisual composer and multidisciplinary artist. She currently teaches electronic music composition at Carnegie Mellon University. Um, she also forged and ran the music computing program at Goldsmiths University of London for almost 10 years. Um, she's collaborated with uh, the experimental music group Nurse with Wound and has also produced many solo works. The nature of her practice is very wide. Freda has released studio albums such as the sublime 2007 release Subtle Movements and she's also works on many bespoke installations and performances. She'll often look to bridge between the fields of electroacoustic composition, immersive sonography, sensor system design and beyond. Running themes in her work are those of movement and interactivity. For example, she works on the Topological Media Lab's WYSIWYG project, which developed textiles equipped with sensors, allowing movement of tapestries to drive sound design. Or her 2012 work, Fear of Flight, where a dancer's movements are captured by a camera and mixed with pre-rendered material. These works revolve in part around the idea of reactive audio design, an interest that is shared with the Flucoma project. Today, we'll be exploring some of Freda's work and learn how she approaches this notion. So Frida, hello and welcome. Thank you. Hi. Um, so perhaps uh, we could begin by you telling us a bit more about your practice and how you got into the world of audiovisual composition. Sure. <laughs> um, so I started out actually in mathematics and computer science. Um, finished that undergraduate degree, started working as a computer scientist and just decided um, that for me, it was wasting my life, that I was really interested in art and that it wasn't, um, I wasn't going to be also, I think that working in computer science, you noticed after a little while that you're solving the same questions over and over again, like when you're working in industry. So um, anyway, long story short, I decided to go to art school and uh, while I was there, I was very interested in figuring out how I could use the programming techniques I had been using as a software developer to make art. Um, right away, when I learned how to program, I started dreaming about like different kinds of ways I could apply those processes to sound. It was almost immediate. The first time I um, played around with sound on a computer was in Visual Basic. Um, so I was like immediately taking programming approaches and it wasn't actually till a while later that I got a copy of sound at 16, which is very early Mac software for sound and started taking samples and modifying them, which was very much my initial approach to sound because I couldn't play any instruments and I hadn't had any formal training. Um, all of my initial music, all of the musical experiments I did early on were electroacoustic music. I just didn't have the terminology to call it that. And it wasn't until I started studying that I developed a better language for talking about what I did and for, de for developing my work. So um, that's how I started making music. But right from the beginning, computational, computational ideas were part of the way that I organized things and part of the way that I thought about problem solving because I had already had that training and I was interested in exploring it. Um, in terms of audiovisual work, while I was in art school, I was very lucky. Um, I happened to, because I was interested in mixing up programming and art, there were only a couple of schools at the time that I knew of where I could study that. And one of them was in London, it was Goldsmiths, which I later got to work at. And the other one was in Montreal. There was a program there just starting at Concordia University. Um, it had some other name at the time, but it was the program that became their computational art program. And because I already knew how to program computers, um, this was a program that was between fine art and computer science. It left me a lot of free courses with which um, I managed to do an electroacoustic studies minor. But also, uh, you know, I started painting and eventually started using video. And it was really rough. I mean, this is going to sound silly, but when I was going to do a master's program, I was a bit at a loss. Like, do I go to a music school and tell them I'm going to work with coding and video or do I go to art school and tell them everything will be organized as music? Um, I was very lucky because I had a wonderful mentor at Concordia. Um, I had some very lovely mentors at Concordia, actually, but I had one in sound called Kevin Austin, and he directed me to Jean Pichet, who teaches at the Université de Montréal. Um, and is a video music specialist. And he was very happy to work with me, even though my compositional process was a little bit interdisciplinary. 
So. Great, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I may have been a bit broad when I decide when I kind of said, "How did you get into the world of audio visual composition?" <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty broad question. Yeah, is is that how we, you would describe your practice, or how? What? Um, I think that at its heart, audio visual composition sums up a lot of what I do, but I, I think of myself as a composer and then I'm just very loose about the kinds of things I organize over time. Um, I'm very interested in the way that we can create gestures that happen between the senses. And so between media, right? I don't think, um, I think that the language that I use as an electroacoustic composer is very, very sensory and fundamentally fairly abstract. So if you can, if you can understand your senses, you can apply that language to a lot of different things over time. And I'm very interested in the way that, um, you know, the sense of gestalt experience when you have a lot of things happening at once, but they somehow are moving in a way where they are unified, mm -hmm. right? So that for me is something that developed really specifically that I got a language for with audiovisual composition. But, um, you know, the piece you mentioned, Fear of Flight, really was working with like combined um, kinesthetic perception. So um, dealing with the kind of unique experience that we have as humans when other human bodies move. You know, and there's like tons of research that show that our like neurons in our brain fire as we perceive human movement and specifically human movement in 3D, 3D space that are very similar to the neurons that fire when we're doing those movements. Right, okay. Yeah, so it's, it's so there is actually an experience about, uh, for instance, watching dance that can be really, really different than watching other kinds of movement. Hmm. That's interesting because, I mean, so on one hand, we have a piece like that where, um, where the audience is going to be watching the piece and so talking about links between perceiving movement and 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 things like mm -hmm. that and then on the other hand you've also done pieces where um i assume like the tapestry piece where the the audience is inv invited to touch the, the yeah so, so that piece is that piece really belonged to uh shashin wei one of my mentors at concordia the topological media lab was his creation and it was a fantastic, I mean, it was a studio where different artists worked on their work, but really it was like a big think tank. You know, we all influenced each other's ideas. I was very lucky to get to be a part of that for several years. And that project really belonged to him and Marcello Wanderley, who's um, just an, you know, an excellent music computing person in at McGill in Montreal. But I, I was lucky enough to work on it. And it, it did teach me a lot about reactive audio design. It was like, maybe not my first reactive audio design project, but up there, you know, one of the first important ones. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, like I've done quite a bit of instrument design as well. And this interest in intersensory gesture really feeds that practice and in some ways comes from that practice, right? So um, I say it comes from that practice, but it also comes from video. It also comes from just being a thinking human, you know, thinking, feeling, experiencing human body where our experience isn't always so um, individually boxed. Yeah, that's great. Um, I suppose I'd, I'd be really interested um, in understanding how you, you approach a project. Um, I, I suppose maybe if, so first I know that you have a very specific um, idea about um, how you conceive of, obviously another very broad term, reactive audio design. Um, perhaps before we get into your kind of creative process, um, maybe you could explain exactly how you kind of envision this concept um, and if there's maybe a broad framework that you work within, what would be its various elements or if, or if it's more? Um, yeah, I think we've talked about this a little bit. So to a certain extent, this is project specific because I will write very different software if I'm trying to make a single instrument um, than if I'm trying to make some kind of an evolving composition that's reacting to real-time data, right? Um, and this is a problem that I've broken down in a lot of different ways because I, I, I wrote an undergraduate degree in it, really. And the way I broke it down for my students, I know I was talking to you about this yesterday, but I thought it might be useful. Um, the first year of the program, I had my students 
basically write a lot of music through programming with the intention of learning how to substitute every part of the compositional process out for a computational process. Um, and then, then there's a, a part of their degree where they're sort of learning about how to write software systems that will develop musical structures for them, right? Which is mostly dealing with like generative and stochastic processes. And then there's like quite a lot of data science in terms of how to uh, manipulate real-time data into useful forms that still preserve important aspects of their character. And effectively, different kinds of sonification processes that um, they might be able to use to make instruments within that system. And then fundamentally, I this is something that I really did pick up in the topological media lab, is I tend to work with state-based systems, state-based compositional systems. So when I personally work with reactive audio, I usually have a kind of compositional framework, like an overall arching form to the piece, which depending on what the situation is, might be linear, right? Might be a state-based system where um, we conditionally go from one transition from one state to another, might be some combination of these things, right? Depends on whether I'm writing a performance or writing something that's very fixed in time, writing something that has a lot of improvisation on it, in it, but I still want to move through various cues, or whether I'm writing something that it is meant to continuously run and flow and develop and change, but not necessarily have a beginning and an endpoint. Right? So that compositional frame framework can be very, very diverse. And um, in every state of the system, I usually um, have to rethink about these questions about uh, what data am I going to respond to and how am I going to respond to that data? So, for instance, it's not that I have the compositional framework evolving and then um, whatever input I have to the system, like, I don't know, say it's, my arms are going like this and it's making beautiful music happen. Yay! Um, that I might be tracking different things at different part of the composition entirely or sonifying the same data in different ways or working with like secondary or tertiary tertiary data points. So like data that I'm sort of constructing from the data that I'm getting, that's measuring different things. So working with different kinds of features that I'm extracting and, and, and changing. So the, the same gestures might do different things with the same instruments, or they might be seeding different kinds of instrumental processes altogether, right? And they themselves might be instigating the different changes in the sort of compositional framework. So it's a bit of a complicated, like interdependent system, but I do love working that way. I find it really interesting because you can, like as an artist, it gives you like this leeway both to sort of continuously be building um, sound libraries of process, like small reactive instruments that sound interesting and that you can see different ways. And then you can later compose, compose with these processes, right? And they allow you to effectively compose with the different kinds of gestures you might be using to seed them. And I'm using this word gesture in a pretty open way because of course, not everything I do is controlled by me waving my arms in front of my face. That's really interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of parallels with um, some of the interests in the Plecome project, um, some of the things that, um, sure. that they've been trying to, to bring to the various coding environments. Um, yeah, so I suppose maybe to, to talk about um, some of those tools specifically. I mean, I know that you haven't had time yet to to incorporate it into any of your work. Um, however, I'm sure you've had much experience with things like automatic slicing algorithms, feature description, dimensionality reduction, yeah. learning that kind of stuff. Um, I was wondering if uh, you could perhaps talk about your experience with these kinds of tools. Sure. Um, and if they're particularly stimulating for you, um, have you ever been frustrated by them? Um, and perhaps what are the specific possibilities provided by these kinds of tools um, mm. that you find important for your work? Um, okay, well, I've used these tools in a few different, very specific ways. Okay. One is um, effectively as a kind of like uh, special real-time effect where I'm often using a kind of like target matching to real-time input. And that might be, for instance, gesture, but it also might be like my voice. I mean, the gestures in my voice. So I might be indexing through sound material that I've like 
previously sung or previously spoken, but having them kind of attract to the, the pitch or the shapes of the sounds I'm making now. So it becomes like an audio effect. And that's fundamentally concatenative synthesis usually. Not always, but usually could be a different synthesis method in which I'm taking like different sounds and stitching them together based on some kind of real time input in a broader, um, a broader kind of application. Input slicing is super, super useful anytime you're doing like a real time a, a piece that you want to seed with like real time playing like real time performance and then um, be indexing back into that performance to sort of create work around a composer. And that's like a strategy that I actually use a lot in the non-real-time world as well. I love working in this very personal way with musicians and with different performers, where it's like you're remixing their own physical language and giving it back to them, right? And I love it because I'm sort of obsessed with this idea of self-similarity of form. I don't, um, I always think about it like, this is going to sound strange, but you know the way like everybody has a slightly different elbow shape? Yeah. Just like it's, it's one of those things that's like really, really unique. And the kind of shape you see of somebody's elbow, you see that shape all over their body. You know what I mean? Like we all have kind of characters and natures to our physical formation, to the way that we move, to the way that we talk, to the patterns we use, like this kind of, this just fascinates me. And so I love the idea of writing pieces for people that are working with their language rather than just shoving my language at them. And it only feels like a real collaboration if this thing that comes out of it meets both of our, both of our languages, both of our like sense of form, both of our understanding of movement, both of our understanding of gesture. So I find like taking real, you know, pieces that start with some kind of bank of material that's actually created by the performer and then work making gestures from with, you know, using that material itself to sort of accompany more work by the performer. Very, very interesting, actually. Mm -hmm. And there's all kinds of things that happen there besides just this self-similarity of form because you're like referencing a temporal experience within the piece. And there are lots of different ways you can make meaning doing that. I would argue that it's like fundamental to the way composition works, right? So anytime you want to make a compositional framework that's self-developing, this is a really, really useful strategy. Um, I've used a lot of different tools to kind of do this, including simple ones that I've made myself, but I've always found them clunky. So this is my particular interest in Flucoma, specifically to my work, is that I think it it's very promising. It looks a lot less clunky. <laughs> it looks a lot more, it looks like there's, it's got a very rich set for figuring out, for instance, how to extract those gestures automatically, right? And by automatically, I mean through programming. <laughs> but this is important because it means I don't have to be there clicking between this and this to say this is the important bit. And um, I think that that can add, like, you as a composer, you often, like, I, I also perform. But as a composer, I, I want to remove my physical pre presence as much as possible when the piece is being done, because I want everything to be featured on the performer I'm working with, usually. Mm -hmm. Not always. So being able to, um, the more things that reliably, that the, the easier it is to reliably specify the kinds of gestures I want to get, the better. Better. And um, I've also used machine learning quite a bit. Um, mostly, not all of that, but most of the time when I'm using machine learning, it's in the Rebecca Fiebrink model. And what I mean by that, not just that I'm using her tool set, Wackinator, which I often do, but that I'm using it specifically um, as a solution for parameter mapping. And I'm being really, you know, I want to be careful how I say this because I think the secret sauce in react reactive audio work is always parameter mapping, always. Um, and data science, like simple data science, feature extraction, right? Um, and I think machine learning is a very, very powerful toolkit that it's not that it's overused, but it can like, it can stand in for that process entirely if you want it to. And I'm a little bit more judicious in how I use it. I, I like, I want it to help that process. I just, that process is actually very personal to the way that your pieces work. So I, I kind of hybrid, I have like kind of hybridized systems 
where I sometimes use machine learning to help me make that mapping. And sometimes it's, it's actually not very useful. So I, or I've got a little bit of both happening and I'm just choosing when I'm using which mapping structure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've also used quite a bit of like, um, do you know Gesture Follower? It's, it was a toolkit that came out of ERCAM. Uh, I've heard of it, never used it myself. There was a researcher named Baptiste Caramieux who extended it. He wrote something called like a VGF, I think it's variance or variable gesture follower. It was really interesting because it was like the first time I had used like um, temporal machine learning processes. So explicit, like, you know, the data points are ordered and it, what was great about it is that you don't actually want to make gestures that are the same that you trained a system on, right? If you train a system to, to recognize a sequence over time, there's always going to be some variability to how it's made. So uh, if I, for instance, make a, I'm going to deal with physical gestures because it's the easiest to explain over video, but of course I'm talking about shapes and data. So there's lots of different ways to make shapes and data, right? And when I talk about a gesture, maybe I should roll this back a bit. Because of the way, ways that I compose, I have a very specific use of the word gesture that doesn't carry to the way everybody talks about it. Most of us, when we're talking about gesture, we're like, hey, you know, we're thinking about like physical, small physical units of meaning that people might make. When I'm talking about gesture, in a sense, this is abstracted from musical language and it's similar, but different. Like what I'm really talking about, like in music, when I talk about a gesture, it's a way of talking about something that I can pick out from the whole to discuss. So usually it's got a definable contour and a definable beginning and end point, right? So we could also be talking about like envelope, right? And this is really important because you can talk about gestures in like for music, personally, the way that I, I teach electronic music, you can talk about gestures that are happening in the production details totally separately from gestures that might be happening in like musical language, right? Um, and of course, it's the same thing in data. If you have like multivariable data, you can pick up sort of unified gestures that are happening over the, the entirety of the thing, or you can pick up uh, gestures that are happening only in like speed changes and gestures that are happening only in like, you know, aspects of that data that you could sort of look at separately from everything else. It's, mm -hmm. it, it's just how it is. When I talk about gesture, this is a little bit different and a little bit removed from like physical things that are happening in the real world. And I, I just want to say that because I think that like the, the way I talk about this might sound a little bit confusing if you're still thinking about a gesture as just like this discrete, almost linguistic piece of music, piece of meaning around the human body. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm completely lost. I don't know what I was talking about before gesture. I'm so sorry. No, well, so, so yeah, um, machine learning allowing you to. Oh, right, right, right. Of course. So. This is really important because it's very difficult to reproduce. Even a human gesture is very difficult to reproduce specifically with a sensor system that's going to be tracking it. Like our brains are, are amazing, you know, and we can we know that this is the same thing as this, more or less, is the same thing as this, but the camera doesn't. Those are three different kinds of movement that that sit in space very differently and they might have different angles, right? And they might not, you know, they might, they might not be totally uniform in shape when you slow them down, at least. Um, and they're different sizes. So how do we recognize them as the same thing? How does a computer, computers, which are fundamentally very simple systems, they just do what we tell them to. Even machine learning, right? They're just doing what, they're just following basically what we've told them to do. It's just that we're telling them to do some kind of complicated stuff and to have a, a kind of memory <laughs> in their classification. It's complicated. <laughs> but, but with computers specifically, and anytime you're dealing with sensors, sorry, you're also dealing with the limitations of that sensors. Um, I suppose their sensory space. I mean, it's easier. I always explain this with cameras because it's easy, but especially when you're dealing also I think about this a lot with motion tracking, you know, everybody talks about using motion tracking and they mean wildly different things. Some people are measuring physics, right? Physical processes. Some people are measuring changes in, um, in a, a camera view, which is like very dependent on where the camera is set up and like the, the lens of the camera and everything else. Some people are talking about me measuring change and calling that motion. And it's always a reduction of the data. 
right? Depending on, on how you're sensing. So it's very difficult to do the things that the brain does, which might classify things as the same, but the data to the sensor system is like never the same. <laughs> it's always different. So the great thing about um, what VGF did as opposed to GF is it would try to follow a gesture, but also try to follow variations and determine whether it's part of the same class of gestures. I apologize. That was a very long way of talking about what VGF did, does, did, and why it was like so great. No, but it certainly demonstrates why machine use, uh, machine learning can be such a powerful and useful tool. And especially oh yeah, totally. No, that was great. And uh, and what you were saying before as well, the the kind of possibilities that these techniques offer to almost be able to insert and find some kind of essential identity of a performer into into a performance. Um, Although I'm going to be very careful about how I say that because my personal observation is that you can use these systems at different scales. And that when I use it in a smaller scale, it's much more um, it's much more like a kind of synthesis method or a kind of special effect use. Mm -hmm. Actually, um, actually, if you're interested in working with performance of any kind, you have to think about using these tools at a much larger scale, because what makes data human develops temporally. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't like, uh, you can't cut the voice into a million pieces and still and still necessarily recreate a sense of that that human voice some i mean maybe you can maybe you can't depends what you're preserving um yeah i just think so, that the scale ma the scale matters a lot if you're trying to actually reproduce if you're trying to actually work with performance yeah as in if you wanted to understand somebody's approach to music you'd need to listen to more than a minute's yeah. worth of their their composition sure sure and i i mean with re with reason because one of the cool things about this tool set right is that it does give you like some pretty sophisticated sophisticated ways of capturing gesture with the understanding that then you might be able to sort of like reinstigate a sense of that gesture so magic <laughs> And mostly about, I think, temporality and change over time and measuring change over time, which for me is like the great way that I unify different kinds of media over time, gestures over time. It really has to do with the way that we perceive temporality through different senses and whether we can sort of uh, make something unified out of that. Yeah, that's great. No, it's fascinating. Um, one aspect that you talked about um, Perhaps one of your frustrations with using some of these tools was that of clunkiness. Um, and it's certainly something that uh, I believe the Flucoma project is, is trying to be addressed, mm. to address. Um, so maybe we could use that as a segue to, to talking about um, engaging with tools like this on a, on a broader scale. Um, so uh, for example, um, I know that uh, you, as anyone who, who does any kind of creative coding or anything like that, um, finds documentation and being able to learn and, uh, and teach um, a certain technique in coding to be very important. Uh, oh. Sorry, you dropped off there for a second. I oh. I'd lost you. It's okay. Sorry. I was, I was having a little chuckle because yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so, and also, um, I'd love to get your thoughts on this because obviously you're not just a, a performer, but you're you're a teacher, and you you teach all this kind yeah. of stuff. Um, I was wondering, yeah, maybe if you could give us some of your thoughts on on what's important and 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 how we how we can approach uh, not just doc documentation, but teaching these kinds of techniques, um, creative coding in general. Um, okay. Important, do we need to approach it practically through workshops? Um, do, have you ever had any particularly uh, good experience? I've taught creative coding actually now for like 12 or 13 years. So I have a lot of ideas about this. Yeah. Um, 
There's a, there's a few things like when people start, they need to see some result. It, like it's really useful if people have a little bit of an ability to play with like um, larger level objects when they first start so they can see the power of what they're doing. But actually, you need to teach people computer science. I get really upset when people try to like hide that. Actually, like artists are excellent problem solvers and a little bit of computer science goes a lot of way, a long way. I'm not saying everybody should get a degree in computer science. I'm saying you never really want to hide to the person you're teaching what's actually happening on the other side. Like, and I mean, in terms of the fact, well, this is like in it, like in terms of the fact like this is different than this, because actually they're referring to different pieces of memory. That's like an important thing that you might need to know or like the order of events that things are happening in. You don't really want to dumb down processes when you're teaching creative computing. You have to actually teach computing as part of it. And otherwise, I think you're really disempowering people because they're not going to be able to solve the problems that come up if they can't think through the logical steps of an algorithm. So computational thinking is a thing. You know, it's important. It's an important thing. And computer science is literally just the study of how we teach that. So I'm not saying that people need to like register for like um, in the computer science department and take those courses. You can definitely teach computer science in an art department. I just mean you cannot hide the computer science part. And I'm saying this specifically because I have seen quite a lot of people who, for instance, they're teaching Max in a way where they they kind of hide the programming to make it like more friendly. And while I think that that might use, it might be useful at the very beginning to see how powerful the tools are you can create with it and to be able to create something easily, very, very, very quickly, people are going to get lost if they can't actually follow through what's happening. Mm-hmm. So um, I have really strong views about that because I've seen a lot of, I, I, because I don't like to see people disempowered. And also because I think art is like the opposite of that. Art is fundamentally empowering people. You know, you're teaching people how to be themselves on a really deep level, how to treasure their own voice, how to make decisions, how to trust their decisions to make something that they care about. So the the very idea <laughs> that you would then like not mm. teach, do you know what I mean? Like hide the processes that they yeah, might yeah. need to actually express themselves seems like yeah. hilarious and cruel to me. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's certainly a really important question interface and the whole concept of black boxing and and it's certainly something that the some of the commission composers on the project um had a great deal of input on um yeah. i think in the oh, tools thing, oh, oh well yeah. wait, let me be clear here that doesn't mean that i don't think that you shouldn't have like a black box interface for some tool sets but when you're teaching programming people do actually need to know yeah. how to program yeah. some of programming is how to interact with black box tool sets and that's actually really, really important, right? You need, and I think that it's very important that uh, one thing I see in music computing all the time is people create these like beautiful tool sets, but actually they're very hard to use from the documentation. It's very hard. Like you do need to make things. Um, you do need like if you if you're going to make a tool set for something like Max MSP, you do need to know that there's like a very large intermediate user base and a very small expert level user base. And the people writing the tools are like above that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you should be aiming uh, at the least down to like low low intermediate, right? Which I see is very rarely the case actually. Mm -hmm. People might think that they're doing that, but I like, if my students by their third year, still second year, second to third year still can't figure out the tool set, the tool set is, is garbage. Yeah. No, that's, yeah. And I think, yeah, you, and there's certainly scope in any kind of project to, to have different entry levels to, to sure. engaging with things. Yeah, absolutely. Like yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But it, it's all based on uh, the documentation and the strength and usability of the interface. You, you There's no question. So like for making something a, a powerful tool set that programmers can use, things have to be well specified, like in terms of what the... Um, and it's difficult. Like every time I see a new software package that um, does something exciting, it's usually got like reams of documentation that are really, really hard to get through to do specific things. And 
you really need something that's actually quite clear with examples of what other people are doing hmm. you know and examples of how of the use cases yeah and examples of the use cases that are easy to run that aren't like so complicated in itself that you can't figure out what's going on yeah, yeah, yeah. that's actually genuinely important yeah yeah and ideally examples of use cases that are like easy to run that explain how they're using the thing and that show you like other ways you can access the thing mm -hmm. because especially like with um especially when people are still like learning but really all the time artists are always sort of like doing variations on other things that have moved them right in fact i would argue that that's the process to become a good artist is you develop a kind of like language good enough to actually figure out what it is about a thing that worked for you so that you can like vary it and experiment with it and play with it mm -hmm. no it's uh, well i i should certainly like to to think that um what we're doing on the flukoma project in terms of documentation is is trying to to put all of these ideas into action um one thing i'd like to talk about that kind of follows on from that um so I found it really interesting towards the beginning, you, you said that um, computational ideas were at, the, were at the base of your practice, were at the heart of your, your approach. Um, and I was wondering if maybe you could talk about that more, um, articulated around the idea um, and the notion that as creative coders, uh, we often find ourselves having to wear different hats. Uh, sometimes we'll be in uh, coding mode, sometimes we'll be in performing mode, sometimes we'll be um, in building an environment from scratch mode. Um, I was wondering, um, is the uh, change between those hats very fluid in your practice? Is it something that you have to cut, separate quite a lot? Um, uh I feel like it, I feel like I have to, if I want to actually make something that I think is like serious for me on an artistic level, then those processes actually need to, at some point become quite separate. Um, like the art that I'm interested in making is fundamentally uh, sensory based in terms of how it functions. So I have to be evaluating it in this very sensory sensorial mode while I'm working. And I actually can't do that while I'm programming. It's like my linguistic brain is on and it doesn't actually allow me to be like, I, I don't know, I guess this sounds terrible because I, I'm often teaching these things that like happen in the middle. Um, and what I would try to tell my students is that you have to like, like you just described, you have to be able to put one hat on and then take it off and be another person to like use the tools that you've made. And obviously this is not true across the board because like there's tons of artists who are like live coding. Live coding is a great example of somebody who's like programming and listening at the same time. But actually the live coders that I know are working from an improvisation practice. So they're not necessarily like, it's not that they're not doing things online. It's that they're also working from like bodies of ideas that they've already been like practicing with and improvising with so they already have a sense of what the actions that they're doing are doing in other words they're not writing new completely new processes live in their programming they're accessing like ways of programming <laughs> that they do all the time and they're like in their practice right maybe with some slightly different variables so it's a different way of like accessing the stuff to listen to they're not like uh they're not like coming up with structure, like the structures at the same time. I, I'm sorry, this is a bit of a complex, a complicated thing for me to put into words, but I feel like when I'm actually programming, when I'm actually trying to like build the tools, I am using a different part of my brain. And that part is not the best at understanding sensory perception. Mm. Not everybody is going to agree with this. And for sure, I always work in a way, like I often work in a way where the programming is sort of like, in the compositional process and when it's in the compositional process you have to switch back and forth a lot faster i just think that for me that is definitely um hard and like a tension point in my process and for it to be really good i sort of work in layers like i have a layer of infrastructure building then i have like a layer of like media building and then i have a layer of like infrastructure 
and media building. And then I have a layer of like fixing on just the sensory side. <laughs> and it's really the only way to put something together that's going to function. Also, I mean, I think that for most people that have like a creative practice that involves some kind of building tools, it's actually really hard to stop building the tool. It's like really, really difficult because you want, first of all, you want the tool to be as robust as possible, right? You want it to work in all the cases. And if you're a good tool designer, you're often making it so it'll work in cases beyond your project. And that's never ending. <laughs> my suggestion for my students is uh, to leave empty functions for the stuff that they're not using now, you know, like effectively. Um, you can scope out that, that that work needs to be done and you can leave, you should leave some notes to yourself on it, you know, in all that glorious documentation that I'm, that they're producing. But, um, that also you have to have a, you have to have a sense of what, what needs to be done for this deadline. And at which point you're going to allow yourself to be a musician or to be an artist, to be that without having to also do the work of being a programmer. And it's very difficult to do that. And unfortunately, I, it, you, you need to work at a fairly high level to even consider that. So endlessly in different kinds of computational art, you see work where the like, I guess the stuff that's going to hit the sensory audience is like an afterthought because they didn't get to it till last minute. Mm. And that can be interesting, but also painful. And also sad on a, for me, I find it deeply sad because like you're, you, you don't get access to that person's like best work. You get half their idea. Yeah. So, so I personally think it's actually really, really important that, that as programmers, we keep uh, valuing our senses and like valuing um, our experience, like valuing our experiences as members of the audience and not just as, as people developing the tool sets, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I, I've, uh, I certainly know what you mean about um, never really finishing the, the yeah. tool aspects of what we're doing. And yeah. it's, it's deadlines certainly can help with that. But uh, yeah, especially when we're just experimenting on our own, that's something that can be difficult. I, th I think it's really difficult. I, I think it's difficult to put down problem solving mode. And it's part of the danger, but like the really good thing that can happen from this, right, is that like the way that I think you develop like um, an art practice using compositional tools is um, fundamentally you build up libraries of the kinds of processes that you're interested in using. Right. And then you just reaccess bits of those when you're actually composing. Mm -hmm. And then you might be writing new libraries for a project and you just it's always like that. You have to give you have to make sure you give yourself some time to actually make to actually use this stuff appropriately. Yeah. But um, or let's say let's say you don't. Because some of us, we all have irresponsible moments. Right. We get so involved in the tool design, we forget to actually like really put bring our best our best work forward into in the in the stuff that's using the tools because we've been so involved in the tool design. Hopefully next project we have that tool developed. So like over time you end up with like this body of resources that are very, very personal, which is wonderful, right? They're very, very personal to you that you can then use to be creative worth with. And so this is why I think it's like um not a beginner's game. Mm. Mm. You know, it's a, it's a practice that really rewards continuing to stick with it because uh, eventually you get to take that hat off. And when you get to take that hat off, you have wonderful things to work with. Mm. Plus you have wonderful, wonderful things to work with that you actually understand, which is very, very powerful. There's like, as an artist, there's like a lot of power in really understanding how your tools are made and what they actually do. Mm. I think that's some very valuable advice for, especially for people that are starting out um, in this kind of field. Yeah, that's great. Um, maybe as a final question, um, perhaps from a more kind of broader or way of concluding some of the things that we've been talking about. Um, so yeah, you're talking about uh, the comp computational ideas being uh, um, 
very important part of your practice. And um, maybe I was right in understanding as you, you, you kind of conceive as computational techniques as very empowering, something that empowers the artist. And then you also talk about um, another very important aspect, which is the sensory aspect of, of your work. I was wondering maybe, um, maybe if it would be even possible to kind of um, put into words some kind of form of, of what computational ideas are for you? What is what okay. are computational ideas? Okay, so first of all, there are like computational ideas that are completely separate from like processes and implementations. And um, this is really important because I sometimes use computational ideas and I'm not programming at all, right? And usually what I mean, like this idea of, for instance, random accessing into something to be able to use it comes from my understanding of program. I mean, we can do it now with like video editors and everything else, but like, I think when I was initially working, I was thinking about pattern, like algorithmic patterning, mm. right? Which was something that very much came out of programming. It's, it's, like it, it, it's like I immediately understood process music, immediately, because I'd already been working with different kinds of computational processes, mm. right? And I'm not necessarily talking um, about music, I mean, this does obviously sum up a lot of generative music, but not all of general generative music and not all of what I'm discussing is generative music. They sort of overlap, but are not the same thing. But it's, it's like a kind of um, process. And then the other thing is that I think a lot of my, uh, sometimes my compositional pro processes reflect things like state-based system design in terms of the way that I'm conceiving of the material, right? So uh, that's this is a little bit more subtle and hard to explain. It's like I'm often inspired by the kinds of processes I have used programming. And they inspire me into different kinds of structures and experience. That does not mean that they are necessarily reflected in all my working methods. I mean, sometimes it is more direct than that because for instance, because I'm interested in doing work that sort of like hybridizes computational process and um, other kinds of art making, or because I have been interested in that kind of work, who knows what I'll do next. Um, I often, sometimes like it has happened before that I've had like a target to get good at something so that I can later roll something back from like my computational work. like. Um, when I was in the topological media lab again, like a million years ago, I did, I wrote a lot of their like real-time video tools at one point. Um, later they replaced these, they got other libraries, but I wrote a lot of the early ones. So it meant that I had a sense of what would be easy for me to do with like real-time video programming. So I started to, when I started to work with tools like After Effects, I wanted to work with like similar kinds of processes because I could work at a like very, very different kind of pixel count. I could work at a different kind of depth and scale in my rendering than what I could do in real time. But I wanted to reflect similar aesthetics because I wanted to be able to integrate the two in a meaningful way and in a meaningful aesthetic way. Right. I wanted because I wanted them to be of the same world. I needed to use similar kinds of processes. So the way that I use the tool was often quite algorithmic. And by tool here, I mean something like After Effects, right? Where I would like work in layers and have them seed processes from like a different layer that I was doing based on luminosity or based on something else so that it would actually reflect the way that I'd be working as a programmer, but I could develop some kind of real aesthetic sensibility around it and do that kind of aesthetic sensory research in After Effects. And so now when I like uh, perform with like real-time video, which I love doing, it's really, really fun, I'm using like processes, computational processes um, that I might be working with in real time to modify or index into material that that has similar processes already in the material rendered in a very, very rich way. Does that make sense? So you can get a kind of you can get a kind of aesthetic between these things by either working with similar kinds of process, sometimes by working with similar ideas. But actually, I think this is an important thing to think about if you kind of want to integrate material that you make um, through like sort of computational process and non-computational process, you have to think about the way the aesthetics are going to combine and be meaningful 
to create something else. And I think that you get into like, this is another place where I sort of see people, uh, sometimes students going wrong specifically, but also just like sometimes it's a place that I think that as artists, like people don't necessarily give like enough attention to. Again, you're looking for like the affect that it's gonna create to the audience who isn't gonna know what's what, isn't gonna value the process just because it's computational or maybe like 2% of the audience will, I've seen that. But like for most, most of the audience is just gonna be seeing, hearing, feeling, experiencing, hopefully loving, you know, and they're not gonna know what's what and it all has to unify. It all has to, it, it's, they're perceiving it all together. They're not perceiving it, it's perceiving it in layers, even though you might be working in layers. So it's, it's important. It's actually, I think, very important that these ideas bleed into each other that like whatever aesthetics that you're working with outside of your computational methods are reflected in your computational methods and vice versa. Great. Yeah, that's really, really interesting, really thought provoking. Um, well, thank you so much for that, Frida. Um, it was really, really interesting. Um, so yeah, I'll be linking to all of the various things that we talked about and all the various people um, down below uh, wherever this uh, conversation will be stored on the internet. Great. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, Frida, and uh, hope to speak to you again soon. Okay, thank you. Bye.